All right. Well, it's good to be with you tonight in the house of the Lord. And uh, we have concluded our Galatians study. That was last week. But I just, I had told Brother Mosier that um, there were some theological themes that I'd like to go over. And he's like, well, you go ahead and do that. <laughs> so, so next week we will start, what are we starting? Uh, Revelation, right. So, thank you. That was it. Yep. Now, I hope I didn't hand out the answer sheet. <laughs> no, I think it's in my book here. But I, there were some things that I, I wanted to go over uh, that I felt like we, that the book of Galatians really talked about that I felt like we needed to go over to have closure, you know. And... Um, one of those things is the reality and the seriousness and even the likelihood of deception in the church. And, okay, so that's kind of serious. <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to have to have a serious talk tonight. So if you look in Galatians chapter 1, turn with me there. And I do need to warn you, too, we'll be doing a lot of page turning, so I don't know if you can, I think it's easier for me to use a, a, a Bible with pages, but some people are really good at, at flipping through on their phone, too, so. Um, but let's look at Galatians chapter 1, and before we go any further, I'm going to say a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity and this privilege to stand uh, before you and to teach your word. God, I don't take that lightly, and I pray that my words will not be the words of man or the words of my own wisdom, but they will be your words. And God, I ask that you will speak to us individually, uh, each person in their own seat, to hear your word and to, to see the things that are, are hidden in your word, God. And Lord, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, in, Gen in Galatians 1, there's something really shocking. There's a lot of shocking things in the book, but this is one of them. When I get to verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly des deserting him who has called you by the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Now, I want to pause there because Paul is the one that brings up the idea of a different gospel. Now, we have to get familiar with this because there is more than one gospel in the world today, and you and me can all be deceived. Now, let's talk about how deep the deception went in the Galatian church. Look at verse 8. Paul says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed or let God's curse be upon him. Notice who he implicates there in, in verse 8. He says, even if we, now when he uses that word, he puts himself in that category, me or Barnabas or any of the others if we, the apostles, bring another gospel. And then he says, or even an angel from heaven. 
Now, the Bible talks about angels, and he, it says that we can entertain angels unaware, which means that we might be in the presence of angels and not even know it. But um, I would think that to see an angel would be a very awesome thing. And even in the Gospel of Luke, it says that the angels appeared and the shepherds were afraid. You know, it's not a thing of, oh, wow, the angels have come. It's, wow, <laughs> this is a frightful thing. So Paul is saying that there's two realms here. There's the earthly realm and there's the heavenly realm. And in either of those worlds, there's only one gospel. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that Paul brought. So do you find it striking that Paul includes himself when he says, that we, if we bring another gospel, this means that no one, not even the most spiritual among us, are exempt from being fooled. So Paul says that the Galatians were being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth. Look at verse 7. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to twist or pervert the gospel of Christ. Among us today are many that would want to pervert and twist the gospel of Christ. All you have to do is turn on some of the TV shows that are, that are on a Christian TV station. I don't, I'm not going to name anybody. But there's a lot of theology, a lot of um, prosperity gospel that you can have everything you ask for. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> you just just have it because you've asked for it. But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say you're going to tiptoe through the tulips once you become a Christian. But that's the theology, that's the kind of deception that comes into the church. Do you know that there are two extremely large religions that began with an angel delivering another gospel? And you might be familiar with them. We, they may come to your door, <laughs> and I've got some neighbors, yep. And they're about 15 million, at last I looked it up, uh, which is about what I think the Southern Baptist is. I mean, it's a large, it's, and, you're, and you know what I'm talking about, the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons. Their uh, founding prophet, Joseph Smith, said that he had a vision one night of an angel, Moroni, who came to him and told him of some plates, golden plates, that were hidden on a hill. And this angel came to him multiple times and told him, when you're ready, you're going to go up here to this hill and you're going to get this, you know, these golden plates. And that, from that vision of the angel came this whole religion we call Mormonism, which is very deceptive. There's so many positive things about that group. They're very family-oriented. Who, who, doesn't want to be family-focused and oriented, you know, everybody. They're, uh, they're very much pro-America, you know, raise the flag and salute and all that. They're pro-America. There's a lot of good there, but there's also a lot of deception. One of their more popular beliefs is that Lucifer himself is Jesus' biological brother. <laughs> if you, uh, and that uh, we can also become gods and live on other planets. I mean, that's just a part of their theology. So, you know, 
you, th- you, and, you and me stand here and we're like, oh, that's a bunch of garbage. But 15 million people believe that. So don't, don't say I couldn't be deceived because it, ha- it happens a lot. And there might be even some Church of God people that have converted to Mormonism. I don't know anybody, but I'm not going to say that that's impossible. The second religion is Islam. Now, Islam is a religion many times larger than Mormonism. It's uh, almost two billion people believe in Islam. But yet it started with what? An angel. And now, um, Muhammad went to a cave, and he, he prayed and fasted in the cave, which, you know, prayer and fasting is good. But an angel came to him and delivered to him the words of the Quran. So after many years, he had memorized these words, and then he, he wrote them down. So um, we have two big religions that have started with an angel. So I want you to know, <laughs> if an angel ever comes to you, the Bible really wants you, the Bible says to discern or to try the spirits. We're not to believe every spirit that comes to us. And we're not to believe every person that tells us something. We ha- no matter how Christian they are, no matter what degrees behind their name, no matter if it's reverend or whatever, uh, you've, you've still got to be a Berean. You remember the Bereans in Acts chapter 17. They were preached the gospel, but yet they went back to the Bible and looked it up to see if everything what he was saying was true. We need to be like that. Now, um, Paul reminds us that even Satan himself could be transformed as an angel of light. So, now I want to further shock you, I guess, by by asking you the question, to what extent did this deception go? How far did the corruption of the Judaizers go in the book of Galatians? Well, look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 12. We'll go back, we'll go up to verse 11. Now, um, Cephas, if some of you may have the word Cephas in your Bible, Cephas is just the Aramaic name for Peter. Petros is actually the Greek word, which means a little pebble or stone. Um, but Simon is his Hebrew name. <laughs> so it's Simon Peter and then um, Cephas. So Paul. Um, says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. So in other words, he was acting one way before the the brothers were sent from James in Jerusalem to Antioch. But then, if you look, it says, but when they came, the people that James sent, he, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So it's after these brethren from James come that he draws back and acts another way. He behaves, he stops eating with the Gentiles and starts eating with the Jews again. He separates himself from the Gentiles. Of course, this, <laughs> this infuriates Paul, and so um, this is why he withstands Cephas to his face. But if you look here, 
James is one of the names that is mentioned. Why do you think James sent certain men? Well, it doesn't say here, but maybe James was wanting to make sure that, um, you know, the, the truth was being taught, possibly, or, or that, you know, uh, he was wanting to know what was going on with, what, with the people in Antioch. So then the second person that's impl- implicated here is Peter. He says, Peter, because of the influence of these brothers from James, did the wrong thing by uh, not fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And then finally, if you look down in verse 13, it says, And with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. Now, to me, there's a little shock factor to that, that, and I think you can kind of read that in the text, that where it says, even Barnabas, as if, as if Barnabas wasn't supposed to be overtaken by this false gospel, but yet he was. So Paul is saying it went, it went that low, to even to Barnabas. He was led astray. So, the principle here is that anyone can be deceived and anyone can fall, no matter how spiritual or how much they um, are close to God and these kinds of things. Now, we want to be as close to God as we could be, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> but yet, we want to make sure that when, when doctrine comes to us, that we try the doctrine. Is it coming from the Scripture? Or is it somebody's interpretation? You know, is this, is this what you've heard a lot of people say? You know, in general, that can, that can mean there's safety in numbers, right? So if a lot of people are saying something, it may be that it's the, the right thing. So the true gospel will bring freedom, not burdens or additional requirements. Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden was light. You know, these people in Galatians could have, just, could have just thought, you know, these additional burdens on us is not what, what Christ brings. He brings freedom from these things. So, but for whatever reason, they, they thought, wow, maybe we need to become Jews first before we accept Jesus Christ. So it's difficult for me to see what the Judaizers were offering as good news. The book, uh, the book of Galatians says that they were preaching another gospel, and, and we know the word gospel is the word for good news, or euangelion, the good news of Jesus. But yet, it doesn't seem like what they were preaching was really good. I mean, it seemed like what Paul was preaching was a lot better. <laughs> so, um, They were saying that the Gentiles could become full-fledged Christians after they, first of all, converted to Judaism through the doorway. One of our, somebody had used that term before, and I wanted to throw that in. Through the doorway of circumcision and swearing to obey the law of Moses. But how is that good news? You know, Paul is saying the good news is you don't have to do those things to come into 
uh, the, the fold of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, he says, everyone who is spiritually born again is a child of Abraham. So we're all sons and daughters of Abraham by virtue of the fact that we believe in Jesus Christ. So what were the claims of the Judaizers? They made a couple of claims that I, I want to highlight. Paul did not get the gospel through, they were saying, Paul did not get the gospel through the appropriate channels or from the proper authorities. In other words, they did not, uh, Paul did not get the gospel from James, Peter, and John, who were the authorities in the Jerusalem church, to which Paul claims, look in Galatians 1.12, he basically makes this argument and says, I didn't have to go to James, Peter, and, and John to get the gospel. He says, nobody taught it to me. It came through what? Revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ unveiled this to me. Now, many of, many of us who have studied the book of Revelation know that word, apocalypsis, which just means an unveiling. It's like you take a veil and you can pull it apart and now you see what's like that one. <laughs> you can see what's behind the veil. Right now, what's behind the veil is covered. But if there was an apocalypse, an apocalypsis, the veil would be torn apart and you could see. This is exactly what Paul is saying, is that whatever covers our, our physical eyes so we're not able to see into the spiritual realm was uncovered for me so that I could see what Jesus Christ was showing me in a vision, in a revelation. And the church of God believes, as it has believed since the beginning, in revelations. We believe that people can have personal revelations from God. Now, this kind of trumps what the Judaizers were saying because they're like, you should have gone to Jerusalem and got your gospel from James, Peter, and John. But Jesus says, uh-uh, I got it right from Jesus. Right from, we might say straight from the horse's mouth, right? <laughs> right from Jesus Christ. And then the other thing that the Judaizers were saying was that Paul just made up the gospel that he preaches. He just kind of made it, kind of wove it together himself. He took some here, he took some there. But look at verse 11 in chapter 1. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel. It wasn't, he argues that it wasn't something that came from a person uh, or, or of a human origin, but it was from God himself, Jesus Christ himself. So even Paul, I want to even point this out, even Paul himself was deceived. Now, not here in Galatians, but you'll remember the history of Paul. He was deceived in that he thought he was, when he was persecuting the church, that he was doing God's service. So we could, we could throw Paul in the mix. Saint Paul is what our Catholic brothers call him. <laughs> Saint. Saint is from the word sanctus, which is the Latin, which means holy. And so we, you know, holy Paul himself was deceived until Jesus Christ straightened him out. And thus, 
the old maxim, you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong, can be proven very true. Deception never comes in like a lion. We're not going to spray paint it on the side of the wall here and say, you know, you need to do such and such to be saved. (laughs) Uh, We're not going to put it in the bulletin. You know, deception is not going to be in the places where you think deception will be. It won't come in like a lion. It will come in cunningly and in secret. Look at Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. Now, in chapter 2, it's the more historical part of this, of this letter. Paul is reminding them that he went to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. And they were having a meeting behind closed doors with the apostles. And it says in verse 4, but some, I'm sorry, but because of false brethren secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom... Notice here that these brethren were secretly brought in, not overtly and out in the open, but secretly. This is how not only sin comes into our lives, but also deception. I'm reminded of of Genesis chapter 3. You know, if you want to talk about deception, go all the way back to the beginning, and you have even the serpent. What does Scripture say about the snake? Now, I think King James says he's the most subtle. I think it's also crafty. He was cunning, conniving, all those kinds of things. He didn't just approach Eve in a way that she would be taken aback or that she wouldn't accept what his message was. He, he approached her in a crafty, cunning way. And this is how deception comes to us. So I want to give you some solutions. I know this is kind of heady kind of material because we're all like, whoa, (laughs) I wonder how I've been deceived, you know. But I, I want to give you some solutions. Number one, in the book of Galatians, one of the ways that we could come against or fight deception is that Paul preached against the Judaizers and their teaching. Number one, you identify the false teaching and then you expose it. Number two, Paul wrote a letter. (laughs) And in Galatians, he refutes the Judaizers and their claims. Next, sometimes Paul had to confront the deception head on. Sometimes deception can be so intertwined, so ingrained, you've got to either go to the person or go to the head of the organization and you got to say, look, according to scripture, what you're doing is wrong or what this organization is is doing is not lining up with Scripture. Notice in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. And we didn't talk a lot about that. This gets a a little bit tricky. You never want to approach someone, especially in a spiritual position of authority, unless God has told you to do it, (laughs) number one. You don't just approach someone and and, um, without God, first of all, saying, look, you need to go and say these things. But you also need to use the biblical model in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus says, go to the individual and see if you can work things out. 
and then we know the rest. If you can't work it out, how many do you bring with you? Two or three, right? That's the old way the Hebrews established um, witness, you know, have a witness with you. And then finally, just get up, get up on the stage, I guess. I mean, I don't know how to interpret it, but it says, come before the, the church. And I think that's what Paul does here. He comes before the church and he says to Peter, you're wrong. And, and Peter or Paul had to call him out in a public way. So the last thing I want to mention is that deception won't go away on its own until it's recognized and called out for what it is. And um, hopefully in each congregation, there are spiritual people enough that they can see the deception and call it out. Now, do we have any questions about that, that part of the Scripture? Just a couple of points. Uh, over in Matthew 24, 24, Jesus is given his uh, Sermon on the Mount, or his, not his Sermon on the Mount, but to his about when shall be the end time, the time of his coming. When verses about 15 through, I don't know, 26 or so, uh, he's talking about during the great tribulation. But Jesus says that if it were possible, the very elect Jews would be deceived. So I don't think we should be scared of being deceived. Uh, that's one point. Uh, Jude, in Jude's uh, scribing under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, he said that I wanted to come to you and talk to you about the common salvation, but I couldn't because, once again, people came in unawares and rested or twisted the gospel of Christ into lasciviousness. And, of course, we talked about lasciviousness last week and, and that type thing. So just a couple of points from other New Testament writings. Thanks for calming us down, brother. <laughs> All right. Any other questions? Comments? Brother Tony. Several years ago, I was working with a Baptist minister, and I asked him, I said, do you think a Christian can be deceived? He said, no, I don't believe they can be deceived. And I said, well, did you know that I think at that time, I, I may be wrong, I, it's been a long time since I talked to X number of hundred of Baptists were being converted by the Mormon church. And every week, that's weekly. And, uh, but, you know, when people drop their guard and they're not praying, they're not studying, uh, and definitely not going to church, uh, they're, they're ripe for deception. Beg your pardon? Itching ears. Itching ears, yeah. A, a lot of people have, want to be told 
things that, uh, uh, like you're talking about there, they want somebody to come along and say, well, this is, this is all right, or that's all right. And did you know? <laughs> did you know that you can become a god? You know, things like that. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of, lot of that going on uh, constantly. And, it, and you brought up a good point. A lot of times deception will appeal to the flesh, and that's why people go for it. So the next part I want to talk about is Paul's theology of suffering. Um, this is another one we don't talk about a lot, because who likes to talk about suffering, right? Not a, not a hot topic. So whoever says the Christian life is without suffering is probably lying to you. He's probably a deceiver. <laughs> Our Lord Jesus even promised that in this world you'll have tribulation or trouble, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Christians are called to suffer with Christ in this life so that we can reign with him in the next. Paul's view, Paul viewed his suffering as one, and I want you to really get this, it, it's, not just, um, it's not just something that happened to Paul, but the suffering that Paul had, he considered it an identifying mark that he was truly a Christian. One that did not want to suffer for the sake of Christ probably was not a Christian at all. The Judaizers, for example, look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 12. Why were, why were the Judaizers deceiving Verse 12 says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh that would compel you to be circumcised, and only in order, what? That they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Yeah. So here's what was going on. The Judaizers saw the Christians being persecuted, and they didn't want none of that. So what they did was they preached the gospel of Moses rather than the gospel of Christ. And because they did that, they didn't get persecuted because the people in the synagogues were Jews and they weren't going to persecute fellow Jews. It was the Christians they were persecuting because they followed Christ. So Paul catalogs his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, if you, want to if you would turn there with me. 2 Corinthians 11. Actually, in my Bible, it's just one page. Because Galatians, 2 Corinthians and then Galatians, right? So if you just turn one page, you're at 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. Now that... That one song, I am pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned. That one kind of goes with this. Uh, I guess it came from the scripture. Look at um, verse 23. Kind of at the end there, I guess. Uh, he says, I am, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, 
with countless beatings, he, he had stopped counting. I mean, <laughs> you know, after it happens to you so many times, he just stopped counting. And often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the 49 lashes less one. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I have been shipwrecked. A night and a day I have drifted at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. Sounds like Jesus. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brethren. In toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. It means he was naked a lot, without nothing. And apart from those things, there is the daily pressure upon me, now this verse says, of my anxiety for all the churches. And then he says in verse 29, who is weak? Am I not weak? Who is made to fall? Am I not indignant? So here we have a catalog of Paul's sufferings. I don't think Paul is uh, boasting about this. He's just saying, this is what's happened to me. And he's saying, it's happened to me because of Christ. And he, I think he does say, I gladly boast in the cross of Christ. Because it's from the cross of Christ that he has received salvation. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. This is one of the more... interesting verses to me. This You'll all recognize the verse when we read it. So, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that, what? We suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And in 2 Timothy you don't have to turn here, but 2 Timothy 2.12, it says that if we endure hardship, we will reign with him. Now, I do want you to go to Philippians. And it's in Philippians chapter 1. So I told you you'd be doing some page turning tonight. <laughs> this is, to me, one of the more shocking verses in Scripture. I think I've, I've done a lot of shocking verses tonight, <laughs> but... This is one of them too. Uh, Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you as a gift. I threw that in there, as a gift part. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, once again, Paul is saying here, that to suffer, it kind of shows that you're a Christian. It shows that you um, are willing to pay the price to believe, uh, to stand up for your beliefs. 
Now, it says um, in that verse, in verse 29, that um, it has been granted to you that you should not only believe, but also it's been granted the privilege for you to suffer with him. And when we talk about privilege, some of your, some of your Bible translations say privilege. To me, privilege and suffering do not go well together. Like, it's my privilege to suffer? <laughs> what? Wait. Wait, Paul. Uh, but that's exactly what he says. It's your privilege, brothers and sisters, to suffer for Christ. Some of the privileges that we have, we don't walk in. <laughs> this may be one of them. 1 Corinthians 15 and 30. Uh, if you want to turn there, Paul just basically says that he faces death daily. But the theology of suffering isn't just found in Paul, and it's found all through the New Testament. Uh, turn with me in Acts chapter 5. I think I gave you all those scriptures. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. This is um, Peter and John, I believe. They were taken to the council. The council said, hey, you got to stop preaching Jesus. <laughs> and so instead of putting them in prison, what did they do? Verse 40, so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Look at verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials. The trial of your faith brings forth patience. And then there's others, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. And then if you would turn to 2 Timothy 3.12 with me, we'll be done turning. <laughs> Look at 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul reminds us here that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, 2 Timothy 3.12. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going out tonight and trying to rile up some persecution, right? I'm not... <laughs> I mean, I could, I guess. But I think where this hits like home with us is when we're in the office and you're around the water cooler <laughs> and you could either participate in gossip or you could not. Or you could um, participate in the dirty joke telling or not. You know, these kinds of things where... It, it gets home to us where if you're separated from your group at work, then there may be some persecution there coming your way because you didn't laugh at the jokes and you didn't stand around and gossip with the rest of us. You know, because Christians sometimes do uh, separate themselves from the group. <laughs> and um, so this, this is kind of what's going on, you know, we don't have the, the beatings and the stonings and all those kinds of things, 
But we do get persecuted when we separate ourselves from the world. Galatians 6.17 says, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. And it says, oh, well, yeah, henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. This is important because, I mean, literally, this is, you know, Paul was beaten with rods. Have you ever seen those, um, those horrible pictures of, of especially black men being beaten and they've got the scars on their back? You've seen that before? This is Paul. You know, he's disfigured because of all the, I mean, can you imagine being stoned and there had to be disfigurement there? So um, he says, I, I literally bear on my body the marks of Jesus. These scars show that I belong, that I identify myself with Jesus Christ. And not only that, but that his scars, in other words, he was scarred as Jesus was scarred. That there was like a one-to-one relationship there. Do you see that? Because he, because Jesus was beaten Paul was beaten like his Lord. And it and it for Paul, it meant I am becoming like Christ, even in the beatings that I receive. Paul was a marked man. You know, in the Greek, that word uh, mark is stigmata. Ever heard of that? That's a, a popular Catholic myth or belief, if you will, superstition. Certain individuals will have the stigmata, which is the the blood coming from the wrist. Um, whether it's true or not, I'm not sure, but you can you can look that up. Um, but for Paul, he was saying this this stigmata or these scars are really a brand, kind of like you would brand a cow. <laughs> you know, you take the iron and, and and put it on the cow. You mark the cow as yours, and you brand him and you scar him. So you know that, that that is your cow. And this is what Paul is saying, is that he bears in his body the brand of Jesus Christ. He bore the stigmata. So what marks do you bear that tell the world that you're a Christian? I mean, it, it may not be a physical scar. I don't have any physical scars for being beaten for being a Christian. But I'm more like talking about your history. Like, where have you been? Where has God brought you from? We all have some scars from our past. But do you have any that mark you as a Christian? I want to be marked (laughs) as a Christian. (laughs) I don't want to receive the mark of the beast. I want to receive the mark of the lamb, right? (laughs) So... Finally, I want to bring across to you tonight Paul's sickness. Now, we've talked about his persecution. I want to talk about his sickness. We, I don't think we've gone into that very far uh, in our study, so I just wanted to go over that. The, the last point that we made was concerning persecution. However, this, with this section, we're talking about weakness. Now, weakness is what? It's our frailties and our shortcomings. We, we all have weaknesses. Um, like, there's a lot of people who are really good at playing instruments and singing. Some of us aren't. 
Some of us really enjoy reading and studying. Some of us don't. I'd rather, you know, some people would rather listen to the Bible on tape. Some people would rather read it, you know, those kinds of things. We all have strengths and weaknesses. So weaknesses can either be physical, mental, or spiritual. We all have those handicaps. And Paul mentions being physically sick in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13. So let's turn there. Galatians chapter 4, verse 13. And it says, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel from God, as Christ Jesus. And what has become of the satisfaction you felt? For I bear witness that if it was possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Wow, Paul. Talking about pulling your eyes out, that's kind of gross. But the literal Greek here, if you translate the words that Paul is using, he uses the word sick, which can be translated as weakness or ailment. And then he says, of the flesh. So literally, Paul is saying, I had a weakness of the flesh. Now, of course, we could translate that sickness into English. And what he was saying here is that he was sick. Now think about that. The Apostle Paul, sick. Now, I grew up Pentecostal. (laughs) I just had a birthday, and I'm 41. So you don't have to do the math. You know how old I am. And for those 41 years, I've been Church of God. I was dedicated when I was like two weeks old or something at... uh, the church actually over here, um, what's the church over here? Heritage Church of God. So I believe in healing. I believe God can heal you. <laughs> I believe if you got cancer, God can heal you. As a Pentecostal, we have a, a spiritual understanding that we're living in Bible times still. In my Pentecostal mind, when I read the Bible, I think everything in here can still be done. And in my mind, I am living in Acts chapter 29. Now, there is no Acts chapter 29. It stops at 28. (laughs) But the idea is that we as the church continue the book of Acts. So, as a Pentecostal, I think, oh, Paul, you know, holy. He's got it all together. He's a great guy. He's going to heaven. You know, he's got everything he wants spiritually that you could think of. He even has a thorn in the flesh (laughs) given to him by God, by Satan. (laughs) That's what it says. Um, But here we have Paul, and he's sick. Did Paul do something wrong? Did Paul sin? Why do you think the wrath of God came on him in the sickness? Maybe it's not anything like that at all. Maybe sickness sometimes is just the human condition. You're just sick. (laughs) Now, 
that's not always the truth. And so we, we need to use discernment with sickness because sometimes sickness comes on because of our sin. But not all the time. <laughs> and like in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. It, it means it, it doesn't, that sickness or that illness was given to him for his benefit, but he didn't do anything wrong to get it, if that makes sense. Okay. So I just want that to simmer in your mind a little bit. Paul was sick. Pentecostals need to balance our belief in divine healing with the understanding that not, not all sickness is from the devil or because some sin that we've committed. I, you know, my wife is a sign language interpreter, and every one of us Pentecostals probably believe deafness is a is either a sign of sin or some kind of sign of sickness, but a deaf person wouldn't see it that way. <laughs> they think they're healed, and they think you need to learn sign language. That's what they think. And they have their own culture and their own community. And in the deaf culture, they communicate fine. It's only when they're in the larger mixed population of all of us that they have a problem with communicating. But See, that's how we have to see things. Sometimes we see things from one perspective and others see it from another. So how does knowing Paul was sick help you in your own sickness, even right now? We need to have a place for disabled people in our church as well, people who are other-abled. Because sometimes those people <laughs> can be anointed too. God loves everybody, and sometimes it's the, the weakest among us that proves God's strength. So this is the first time that we are hearing in this book that Paul has been sick. Luke, who writes the book of Acts and who gets a lot of his material from Paul, Paul apparently didn't tell Luke, hey, I was sick. You might want to write that in Acts. <laughs> it comes in Galatians. But this is the first time we're hearing about it. So there have been a lot of guesses as to what Paul was sick with. Now, one of the most common, because he mentions taking out their eyes and giving them to him, is this condition called ophthalmalia. I think I spelled that right. And um, this is a condition similar to maybe um, pink eye or something that would produce an oozing, I know it's kind of gross, uh, pus and oozing from the eyes. And then we have a little more evidence of that in Galatians chapter 6, um, verse 11, that says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Well, why would you have to write such large letters if you could see well? He probably couldn't see well. Maybe. Some argue that he, when he went to Galatia, there were some swampy areas in one of the places that he went to and he, a, a mosquito bit him, and he caught malaria. It's just as valid as the eye one, except I'm, I'm not sure if there's as much evidence for that. And then finally, one scholar that I read said that the illness was so severe, so unpleasant, so unsightly, that it disfigured Paul in some way. That the sickness was to such an extent that you might kind of draw back a little, like, whoa. And 
these Galatians were, um, could have done that, but notice how they approached Paul. It says that they welcomed him with open arms as if he were an angel or even Jesus Christ himself. So Paul says that, even though my sickness was revolting to you, you didn't reject me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I I were an angel from God or even Christ himself. The New English Bible says, you resisted any temptation to show scorn or disgust at the state of my poor body. So, something was bad wrong with Paul. He was sick. And he couldn't heal himself. You know, I wonder if he called for the elders of the church. I don't know. James tells us to do that. I'm sure he prayed for himself, like, Lord, heal me. (laughs) But for whatever reason, God used this sickness for the Galatians, for their benefit, for their sake. And what did they do? They welcomed him with open arms. Sometimes caregiving is not as much about you as it is about the person you're giving care for as it is about you because it builds character. You're a caregiver. You should. It builds something in you, doesn't it? Something that wasn't there before. And then finally, if you look at verse 15 in, in, in chapter 4, it says, you would have gladly taken out your own eyes and given them to replace mine. That's to what extent that the Galatians loved and cared for Paul. And so now you see the astonishment of Paul because it says here, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You guys loved me. You took me in when nobody else was going to take me in. I was gross. I had stuff coming out of my eyes. I was stuff coming out of my nose. (laughs) I was gross. And malaria means diarrhea. So if he had malaria, he could have been needing a a bucket real, real close to his bedside. I mean, we're talking about he was sick. And yet the Galatians accepted him. The Bible has a lot to say about weakness. God takes the weak things of the world and he uses those to confound the wise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.30, If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things which show how weak I am. Now, isn't that the opposite of what you... Now, I did some interviews today as a part of my job. I, I was on an interview, a hiring committee. You know, whenever we ask the weakness question, what is your greatest weakness? There were people that tried to specifically avoid that question. And they talked about their strengths, and they said nothing about their weakness. It's a human thing within all of us to tell you everything good about us and not say anything bad. (laughs) Who wants to know the bad, right? It's part of the human condition as well. So Paul says the opposite. He says, I'd rather boast about the weak things, about my weakness, because it's in my weakness that Christ is made strong. Now, why would he say that for? He continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, if you want to turn there, and verse 5. He says, I will boast about my weakness. 
For though I wish to boast, I shall not be a fool, for I shall be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And to keep me from being too elated about the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. That's what this version says. To keep me from being too elated. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think we, it's all our desire for God's power to be made perfect in us. And he's going to use your weaknesses to do it. So the summation of what Paul has learned is when he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. May we all learn that. Jesus Christ was Paul's model for weakness. And I'm going to end the lesson tonight with uh, reading Philippians chapter 2. So let's turn there. Is that thunder? Nobody's on the roof, right? I mean, (laughs) sometimes it's like, did the elves get on the roof? The last thing I want to read is out of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Christ was Paul's model of weakness. How did Paul get this idea of weakness? He modeled it after Jesus. Whoops, I'm in the wrong book. I'm just going to read the very first part of chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive to love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That, that goes against every American sensibility that I have. <laughs> but it's there. Let each of you not look to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind, phronete is the Greek word, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a doulos, a servant. And being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, not Caesar, Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the humility here of Jesus Christ. It was in Christ's weakness 
that he was his, at his strongest point on the cross. We see him as a, a weak lamb. The book of Revelation says he was a lamb slaughtered, a lamb slain. And we see Christ on the cross as a suffering servant. And Paul was too. How was Christ made strong in your weakness? Think about that. Don't discount your weaknesses. They might be your strengths in disguise. Any final thoughts before we are dismissed? Of course, there's more we could have said tonight. Paul says a lot about the cross of Christ, about salvation, sanctification, adoption, and all those things. I mean, there's just a, you can never plumb the depths of the Bible. (laughs) So, but um, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you today for your blessings, and thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had of teaching. Lord, we we pray that your spirit um, will keep us from deception, God, and that we will be able to, to notice the wolves in sheep's clothing as they may come to us, God. And Lord, we pray that you will help us in our persecutions, God, that, uh, Lord, we might, we might be worthy to suffer for your name. Lord, and help us in our weakness, God, the things that we want to shy away from. God, help us to understand that they may be our strengths, and that you want to um, you want us to to boast about our weakness rather than our strength, so oh God. And Lord, we just pray that these ideas will will stay with us through the rest, the rest of the week until we come to your house Sunday to worship you. In Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen.